Hello, everyone, and welcome to Tinnitus Talk, a podcast on all things tinnitus. My name is Sean, and today we have a great interview for you to listen to. But before we get into it, I want to talk about a few things. I want you to think back to when you first went to the doctor when you had tinnitus. You probably showed up, you asked about treatments, cures, anything that could help you. And the doctor probably said something along the lines of, sorry, there's nothing we can do. You got to learn to live with it. This is unfortunately a very common experience between a lot of us with tinnitus. Probably aren't aware, but there is something called clinical practice guidelines. These guidelines are things that doctors are supposed to use and be aware of to help set out a treatment pathway for tinnitus patients. Now, we all know there's no cure, but that doesn't mean there's nothing doctors can or should do. That's what's going to be talked about today in the interview. A few weeks ago, our director Hazel was in Italy to attend a meeting of the European School for Interdisciplinary Tinnitus Research. It's a research consortium that we, Tinnitus Hub, are a partner of. We represent the patient voice to the researchers to try and find ways of getting patients more directly involved in the research. While she was there, Hazel had a chance to sit down with two of the co-authors of the newly published European Clinical Practice Guidelines for Tinnitus, Derek Hoare and Rolana Sima. Hazel talked with them about why clinical practice guidelines are important for patients. They also went through some of the treatment recommendations for the guidelines and pointed at areas where more research is sorely needed. The interview was conducted on-site in rather imperfect conditions with only one microphone. So in case you hear any minor flaws, keep in mind that we're making this podcast on a near-zero budget and thus don't have money for fancy equipment. Now without further ado, let's listen to the interview. Hi, I'm Hazel. I'm director of Tinnitus Hub. Uh, Tinnitus Hub is a uh, patient organization, uh, volunteer-based, non-profit, uh, run for tinnitus patients by tinnitus patients. Uh, one of the main things we do is run the biggest online tinnitus support community called Tinnitus Talk. Um, I'm here today in Milan with Derek Hoare and Rolana Sima. Welcome. Um, would you both care to introduce yourselves? Sure. Uh, so I am Derek Hoare and I'm an associate professor in hearing sciences at the University of Nottingham. Um, I'm a translational researcher. I have a very large team who are primarily interested in tinnitus and hyperacusis. Uh, some work also in hearing loss. Um, I have a, a preference or a bias, I suppose, towards uh, psychological interventions. So I do a lot of work developing psychological interventions, developing self-management interventions. However, I'm also quite interested in biomarkers at the moment and how we measure the impact of tinnitus. Hi, my name is Rilana Chima. I work as a researcher at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. I also work as a clinical coordinator uh, in Adelante, which is a clinical center also in the Netherlands, very close to Maastricht. I um, have both a research team and a clinical team. Um, my main research focus is on uh, tinnitus. The, uh, I also have a bias towards cognitive behavioral interventions uh, for tinnitus complaints. Uh, my research interests focus on uh, the psychological mechanisms underlying tinnitus, how we measure tinnitus, and um, I also do some experimental research. All right, thank you guys. So uh, I invited you today to talk about the new uh, European clinical practice guidelines for tinnitus. Um, so um, 
Derek, can I, can I start with you and, and ask you to explain what are actually clinical practice guidelines? Uh, well, they are, as they say, they are guidelines. So they are a, a set of statements that have been put together very systematically uh, to enable careful, informed, shared decision-making between clinicians and patients. So they bring together the best available research evidence. Um, where there's gaps in that evidence, it, it draws together um, expert opinion. And by expert, I mean clinician opinion, patient opinion, consensus, um, and really considers all of those elements. Rilana, why is it important that we have clinical practice guidelines? Um, well, as you might know, um, with tinnitus uh, healthcare, um, many things are possible, but there's also um, oftentimes, not only with patients, but also with healthcare providers, um, uh, a sort of... Uh, yeah, lack of knowledge of what can I do, what is uh, the evidence, the state of the evidence at this time, um, what is best for this patient in particular, what do I need to focus on. And um, it's not only the case, for example, I work in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands. Um, it is, um, as we have noticed across Europe, we see uh, that happening, which makes that tinnitus healthcare is oftentimes very fragmented. So uh, tinnitus patients end up almost anywhere actually, and um, with no clear uh, direction to go uh, when they s seek help or, or care. So that is why um, it is very important to have some sort of guide uh, to set off indeed mm. statements. And, and were there um, other problems that you identified with the current standards of care across Europe? And, and were there also notable differences? Yes. Yeah, um, as expected, actually, um, we found that the healthcare across Europe is very uh, differentiated, and so it's um, hardly comparable. So there's a difference in resources we can use for healthcare or the organization of healthcare. And as I said previously, this is, um, it's a complex problem, as we say. It's a, a, a very, the group of patients, if you look at them, they're very heterogeneous. Um, meaning that many disciplines are involved in a healthcare trajectory for tinnitus patients. So, yeah, it's scattered, it's everywhere and nowhere. So that is what we've seen, I believe. Mm, absolutely. Um, we just don't have a, a, a common standard currently. And we see that in every single country. Um, I can, I can certainly speak to it from a, a UK perspective, mm. uh, in that patient experiences are very different. Uh, we have a national health service. It should be equal and open to everybody. But actually, uh, for, for people who have tinnitus, their experience can be dramatically different. And there are lots of factors. So it depends on their geography, um, which department they attend, even which clinician they see within a department. So, so without a, 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 some guideline, without some standards, um, a lot of care is really informed by the experience of the individual. Um, what elements of training they have chosen to undertake, um, what tools they use within their assessment, and again, what resources they have to hand, so what their department can actually offer. Um, and I don't think a lot of patients will, will not be aware of the variability that there is. Um, I think it's very good that patients speak mm. now, um, but these guidelines will hopefully introduce a standard uh, that can people can aspire to and work to. 
I can actually attest to that as a tinnitus patient. I had to pretty much figure out, I'm also based in the Netherlands, and I, and I had to figure out that there were actually available uh, services that uh, my GP didn't know about. Mm. So, uh, yeah, you really have to figure it out for yourself. Um, <clears throat> can you say anything? I, I know you didn't specifically look at that for these guidelines, but in terms of differences between Europe and the rest of the world, maybe particularly North America... So we got funding from the European Commission, so, and the main goal was to, um, try and, um, develop a, a standard set of, uh, guidelines for Europe. Um, what we did do, we did involve, uh, when we, um, were in the final draft of the guideline, we did involve, um, experts from overseas, as we say. So there were some experts from the Americas, I believe as well as Australia, for example, but uh, we were not able to investigate properly the situation in in, um, in those um, areas. So, yeah, unfortunately, I cannot say anything in the comparison. We did a review of existing guidelines, and one of which uh, was, which was included in this review was the American uh, guideline. Um, as we looked at it, we saw indeed that it was, um, yeah, well, we believe it's quite comparable, possibly, um, the situation in, in America uh, to Europe uh, situation, right? Absolutely. I think so in terms of, of availability, available mm -hmm. treatments. Yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty much on par. Um, the American guidelines were actually one of the, the stronger of the guidelines that we reviewed. Yeah. And they emerged as actually being of very high quality. Yeah. So they took a very rigorous approach to, to reviewing evidence for, for particular elements of care. Yeah. And all of those elements of care, in fact, are elements of care that are also used or available within Europe. Yeah. Sure. I'm sure that's good to know for our American yeah. listeners. Mm. Um, you mentioned already a little bit about the different stakeholders involved in drawing up the guidelines. Um, how are patients uh, consulted or involved in the process? Um, yeah, so the guidelines um, are based on, first of all, a review of existing guidelines, uh, one of which the American guideline, uh, and uh, we took from that uh, the results from the combined guidelines to base uh, part of this guideline on as well to see whether it's comparable and, um, as you say, on par. Um, second, we did a survey, a pan-European survey, uh, where we uh, asked uh, uh, several stakeholders uh, about the situation as is in their particular country, in their particular institute or setting. Um, this, uh, these two um, information resources both were the fundaments on which we based the the European, the first draft of the European guideline. So when we um, did all that work in the first few years, we compiled uh, evidence and data. And um, then we did a large literature research to see what new evidence we could incorporate, and that gave us a first draft. This first draft was sent out between ourselves first to see did we include all that the experts believe uh, should be in there, a second uh, round of um, consensus round was a third party 
um, stakeholders, which included um, all uh, known to us patient associations. And they were enabled to comment quite detailed on the whole guideline. Um, and they did. So, uh, right? It was Absolutely. quite exten extensive. Um, uh, really nice to um, um, experience the commitment um, of going through. Uh, I mean, we wrote 80 pages of document and we got detailed uh, comments on, on many issues in the guideline. So, yes, they were quite involved. Hmm. And did the patient input lead to any significant revisions? Yes, <laughs> they did. Yeah. All, all the consensus rounds. Um, um, one of our, uh, one of the main principles, uh, we, uh, there was a small steering group of which uh, both of us are, were part. Um, and others uh, who are also the authors of the current guideline. And we started the uh, venture with the principle that it would, should be consensus-based. So everyone we involve should have a say and um, a vote. So uh, one of the consequences was that every comment was to be considered by the steering group and um, answered and um, replied to. So um, we took a lot of time to go all the hundred through all yeah hundreds of comments mm -hmm. to uh, try and change either the text um, if not possible of if for some reason we believed okay this is might be something different then we replied to the comment asking for um, um, either understanding or uh, uh, more information from the commenter. And um, one of the things we also did, we asked each commenter whether or not they were experts or patients or policy uh, people or insurance people. We asked all of them to, to make a rating. If they had a comment to say, okay, this is an essential change. You have to change this. Otherwise, they will not, not um, agree with this guideline. Then it was possible change. And then they could say, okay, this is just a comment. Please uh, answer my question or comment on this comment. So all the essential ones, the ones scored with the one, we um, we were sort of obliged to change. I think for me, um, what I recall quite strongly is the um, final chapter mm -hmm. uh, of the guidelines. Mm -hmm. So we, we wrote an entire chapter dedicated to um, very straightforward, very clear information that should be conveyed, kind of separate from the, the randomized control trial discussions that were going on in other chapters, for example. Um, and there, actually, patients really informed the content. Uh, there were lots of elements in there that they that they they did not understand, or, or they contested, um, or they thought were missing. And um, so there was certainly lots of input um, and lots of modifications to the guideline based on that. Mm. Very good. good to hear. 660 comments altogether. Yes. I, <laughs> I don't envy <laughs> you. <laughs> it was days and days of going through comments. I, mm. I, yeah, I absolutely. I'm sure. Um, so uh, I think some patients, maybe when they uh, see the guidelines, might be slightly disappointed with uh, sort of a perceived focus more on the coping mechanisms and the psychological interventions rather than uh, the treatments um, that would make the tinnitus go away. Um, why this focus? 
So I, I, there is a focus, I think, in terms of the, the volume um, of the guideline that's dedicated to talking. However, um, the, that is represented off the evidence base. Um, we, we, we actually, uh, you know, marker, one marker of a good guideline is that it's comprehensive and that it, it, it completely um, covers the population of interest. So hence the need for the European survey. So we looked at everything and um, we identified everything that was used as part of tinnitus assessment or used as part of tinnitus therapy or treatment and everything that's in use, uh, we made sure to cover in the guideline. Um, so for a lot of the more treatment, if you want to call them, uh, a spectrum of, um, approaches, um, that we just have very, very limited evidence. Um, so, so they are in there and we were able to make some level of recommendation. Um, however, where we have a volume of evidence is always related to psychological intervention. Um, mm-hmm. So it's more about the quality of the evidence and what is available right now mm-hmm. in terms of treatment that informed uh, this focus. Uh, it's not that you're saying psychological intervention is the only way to go, for instance, or no. right? No. <laughs> Just to no. clarify that. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Thinking of the group of patients that really fall into sort of the extreme, on the extreme end of the spectrum, the most severe sufferers who are uh, probably the hardest patients to treat, uh, do you think they will benefit from these guidelines? I believe um, they will. I think um, any patient or um even the family of patients, healthcare providers, even the ones who are not involved daily with tinnitus patients, uh, that they can benefit from guidelines. It just offers a framework and a sort of a pathway for people to get information. That is the goal of the guideline, to give people a sort of uh, state of the art or as a situation of, okay, these are the treatments, these are the ways we measure. These are the ways at this time we uh, try and solve issues. And um, um, and this is the evidence. So that is, anyone could benefit from, uh, from that, I believe. In treatment, however, that's a different question. So um, obviously the guideline does not say what is effective for whom. So that's a different question, and um, that involves obviously a very personalized approach um, for the specific patient or uh, healthcare seeker. Um, on either end of the spectrum, there's also many people with mild tinnitus complaints who feel they also don't know where to go. They just want some information and answers. So to um, service them is also of high importance. Obviously, the people at the very severe end of the spectrum as well, and um, as soon as possible, I believe. But it's important to, to for all of these people uh, to take a very personalized approach. Absolutely. And, and I would add that I think one of the importances of the guideline and one of the emphasis that we place is actually establishing what the impact of tinnitus is for the individual. Mm. So again, there is a complete lack of uniformity in how tinnitus is, is assessed. Um, so hence we, we don't really have a, a good comparison and, or a good definition of what are more extreme 
So we have very clear guidance on um, using self-report measures to establish just how bothersome tinnitus is and triaging and directing people to the right care. Exactly, um, yeah. That's that's not happening. I know certainly in the UK, mm. again, not wanting to <laughs> focus too much on the UK uh, necessarily. <laughs> I'm sure it happens everywhere. You know, yeah. uh, we have we have family doctors or, or primary care physicians who who do not refer people onwards. So people present with bullets and tinnitus and present again and present again and maybe present three or four times before they eventually yeah. get a referral. So what we're very clear about here is that if someone has a bothersome tinnitus, they need referral. They need proper yes. assessment by ENT and audiology. They need further assessment. If their tinnitus is severe, they need referral to specialist tinnitus services. And even within tinnitus services, specialist tinnitus services, there is a need for further assessment to just to establish yes. just how severe the tinnitus is and what approach should be taken. Yes. Yeah, that's uh, indeed, I can again attest to that. I had to uh, uh, almost beg for a referral yeah. <laughs> after going in the second or third time to my GP. So, yeah. yeah, I think that's very common, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, for me too, I can attest. It's very recognizable of all the patients I uh, speak with that it's this story, actually. So why didn't I know about this like two years ago? This would have saved me so much suffering. So... Yeah, we wanted to do something about that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Next up, we'll continue with a discussion on the treatment review part of the guidelines, where you'll find out what the current scientific evidence tells us about different treatments. We do want to take a moment here to ask if you guys are enjoying the podcast. If you are, please consider donating to us. If you're willing to support us financially, even just a few dollars, we'll be able to reach even higher quality standards. And we can, for instance, travel to do interviews and get more interesting guests. You can find all the information about how to make donations on our podcast page at tinnitustalk.com slash podcast. So uh, let's move on to the treatment review part of the guideline, which uh, I think is probably the core uh, of it. Um, so this is where you guys looked at all the uh, currently available treatments and then gave a recommendation based on the available, currently available level of evidence as to how safe and how effective uh, is this treatment. And I think many will be surprised to learn that actually the majority uh, of the treatments you looked at received a uh, no recommendation verdict. Uh, I'm actually just going to list them uh, for the listeners and the viewers. So um, cochlear implants got a no recommendation or only for hearing loss, but not for tinnitus per se. Um, then transcranial electric stimulation, vagus nerve stimulation, acoustic neuromodulation, invasive neurostimulation, tinnitus retraining therapy, sound therapy, and acupuncture. So these all got a no recommendation verdict. Uh, Derek, what does that mean, no recommendation? <coughs> so in, in making these judgments, we were primarily focused on randomized control trials and systematic review level evidence. So that kind of top of the pyramid evidence. Um, and, and these are really the gold standard for evaluating any therapeutic intervention. Um, so what we were looking for was evidence of benefit on relevant outcomes. And um, what we found for most or all of these treatments was limited or no randomized controls or systematic review. 
So what we're concluding with a no recommendation is that we have insufficient evidence to make a judgment in either direction. So it's not a judgment against, it's not a judgment for. What we're saying is we simply don't have the evidence that we need to make any kind of informed recommendation. Well, that's very good to clarify. So just to be extra clear on this, you're not saying that these treatments don't work. They could, for all we know, they could, but it just hasn't been studied thoroughly enough. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Um, so uh, I just picked out a few other things from the treatment review. Obviously, we can't go through all of them or we'd be having a three-hour session. But um, I did notice that you gave a recommendation against, or it was a weak recommendation against, uh, drug treatment. Uh, why is that? Again, it's it's important to be clear that what we're talking about with when we talk about drugs are drugs specifically for tinnitus. And so there is no drug that has ever shown um, significant benefits specifically for tinnitus and change on tinnitus severity. Um, there's obviously lots of trials um, using um, antidepressants or anti-anxiety drugs or sedatives of some form. Um, however, these are these have their own place. So the recommendation here is is clearly about um, not specifically prescribing them for tinnitus and it's a weak recommendation against because clearly drugs have potential for side effects so yeah. antidepressants anxiolytics there there are lots of issues with, with sedation with dependency and um, these are all known side effects so do not prescribe them just for tinnitus clearly they're indicated if somebody has a, a clinical depression or a clinical anxiety um, then you're following a different treatment pathway. You're not following a tinnitus pathway. So this is clearly specifically about tinnitus and prescribing for tinnitus. Mm -hmm. Right. So if someone were severely anxious <coughs> or depressed, maybe because of their tinnitus, then uh, some of those drugs could be used to treat that anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it shouldn't be used just to treat the tinnitus. No, no they would, should be used following the guideline for depression or anxiety. That's Absolutely. a different guideline, different problems, or the group of experts. Mm. So, clear. Mm. Um, the guidelines also state there is no strong evidence for uh, tinnitus retraining therapy. However, this does seem to be in some countries, I think particularly in the US, something of a gold standard. <laughs> Uh, very generally applied uh, treatment. So why do you think this is? And is this something that should change? Yes, well, that's indeed the case. We see that not only in uh, North America, but also in Europe, it's um, up to this day, uh, maybe the most uh, employed way of treating tinnitus patients. I can... Um, well, the reason for that might be that it's heavily, pro uh, it's heavily protocolized, so it's a standard way. It gives regulations. Uh, healthcare providers have a book or set of rules which they can follow. Um, people get a device which they can take home. So all of this, I can believe, is very helpful when uh, with a group of patients who usually end up um, bouncing from one place to the other. So I can, I, the, I think it's practicality mostly that, uh, makes this the standard, uh, approach. 
um, a different story is obviously that whether it works. So there's been many studies um, uh, using TRT as, as either the main intervention of study or as a comparison. Um, TRT is also highly modular, so it's not just one thing, it's different things which combine <coughs> into TRT, so it's difficult to see what specifically t um, in studies was used as being TRT, but if we look at studies performed by the people who developed the TRT, then we see that um, indeed, at this time, even after so many years and so many studies, we, we were unable to say either whether it worked or, or not. So, yeah. That's and that's what, it. <laughs> that's it. That's yeah. what we, we saw. So yeah. there's um, no reason. So that that at least should not inform uh, the standard of care. Um, I think, uh, but that's my opinion, that standard of care might be better informed uh, by evidence. So I think people out there who have been uh, following the research news closely um, will notice the absence of uh, upcoming or emerging treatments. Like uh, I think a big one now is bimodal neuromodulation. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, they will wonder why these things are not covered. Why is that? So emerging treatments. Uh, so we only included in the guideline um, treatments that are actually used in practice. Um, and yep. that was quite many. Mm -hmm. um, we, we chose to not report studies, emerging studies where there was no evidence currently in the literature, um, randomized control trial level evidence. Um, so we had a certain level of conciseness, I guess, uh, but emerging treatments will not feature in the current guideline because this is about what clinicians and patients can talk about today in their clinic and yeah. what they can do today in their clinic. What is available. What is available. Yeah. But these guidelines are going to change. Um, we will be revising them yeah. in, in, in three or four years time. Okay. And so anything that is, is emerging further and actually being used in, in practice uh, will be featured in the okay. guidelines in the future. Right, so anything that comes on the market in the next few years, and if there are studies published yes. uh, on its safety and effectiveness, mm -hmm. you can include it yeah. then. Oh, we, we must. We it's, must it's include it then. Okay, yeah. good. Um, so I'm also thinking in terms of what uh, directions do the guidelines point researchers at, tinnitus researchers. So, I mean, one thing that's clear is that actually very few uh, currently available treatments have been studied thoroughly enough. Um, so what do you think this tells researchers in terms of the focus areas for the, for, for future studies? Um, yeah. Well, I think chapter four says enough. It uh, quite for, uh, strongly states that for most of the treatments available, there's unfortunately not enough evidence to make a decision. So that's, that is in, in a way a little bit steering to people involved with these um, intervention pathways. The ones you, you listed nicely just now, so, well, it's a call for please provide better quality evidence maybe or give us uh, 
give us a solution to what to say in the next uh, version of the guideline. Um, yeah, what I think the guideline in it as a whole uh, makes clear that lots of effort in in Zinnitz's uh, research um, is being allocated, funding as well, um, but that we're not there yet, uh, far from it, that we have a lot. If you look at um, everything we, we had to include in the guideline, but uh, we also had to conclude that for most of it, we are not yet there to, to make a definite decision or, or, or uh, we don't have enough evidence yet. So others, maybe you can... Uh... I, I was just from a researcher perspective, mm. um, guidelines are also critically important. Mm. So we are constantly asked about demonstrating the impact of our work and the impact of our research. Yeah. So what benefit is this having for patients? Um, without a guideline, it's quite difficult to demonstrate that. Um, however, with a guideline, you can show that there is, we, we've produced some high level evidence here and it has informed these clinical guidelines. These guidelines will inform clinical practice. So this is, that's the kind of pathway to impact. So a guideline now has really laid down the challenge for researchers to do research at, at a standard, at a quality that makes it usable and yeah. actually useful. Um, so if people are pursuing uh, tracks of research, then they need to, to now do so at a level that's going to be informative. Yeah. I think a lot of the literature and a lot of the things that you've mentioned have been subject to lots of small scale studies, non-control studies, yeah. and they all have their place. Um, however, to reach conclusions, we need good quality, high level evidence and, and lots of it. Yeah. So that's large scale randomized yeah. controlled trials, for example. There is okay. other ways. Yeah. Okay. But, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that actually the only uh, treatment in the guidelines that for which there was a, a, a large volume of uh, high quality evidence was uh, and that pointed in favor of the treatment is cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, I know that some patients worry that more funding for uh, CBT. Um, since it has already been extensively studied and proven to be effective, would draw resources away from uh, cure-focused uh, research. Is that a legitimate concern, you think? Um, well, since um, I am very much involved in trying to develop effective uh, CVT interventions for tinnitus, I can say that uh, it's not the case that there's a lot of funding um, there is a lot of funding going towards the cure and the, the, the more the causative factors of tinnitus, which is obviously very important. I believe there's minimal funding for the actual intervention based on CBT. Um, you speak of the large uh, quantity and quality of uh, a quantity of funding which has been spent. Well, actually, we speak here of only uh, a few studies of high quality and uh, very limited funding so it's a it's a miracle if the 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 evidence is there so um, yeah i cannot attest to the, the large parts of funding going towards um, mm. i should i think it should be evenly spread actually um in all areas of research so what caused it the causative factors and mechanisms in ear and brain how can we cure it maybe or lessen it in that uh, respect also 
on your brain level, on a perceptional level. But in the meantime, there's many people suffering. How can I cure them without looking at cause, uh, waiting for um, answers about uh, causative factors and uh, areas in the brain? But how can I help them now? So I think all these three things should be heavily funded <laughs> yeah. at the same time. What's your view on that there? And it, it's something I'm very conscious of and mm. it's, it's raises an issue very regularly. Um, as a, a translational researcher, yeah. I'm sitting in the middle between basic and clinical. Um, and my, the expectation is that I am doing something that will have benefit for patients in the short term. Mm -hmm. So, um, developing a new drug or developing new, um, surgical procedures that that takes many, many years. And that's quite a, it, it needs to start from a very basic science. Um, we have, um, and I think many countries have very separate funding for basic science, for translational science, for, for applied, more clinical science. And, and that money doesn't shift between. So we have very completely separate funders for, for these two work streams. Um, the hope is that the basic science feeds into the translational science and the translational science feeds into the, the clinical science. Um, but, but in terms of funding for most, it is, it is quite separate. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't impinge. Um, I think that's a very useful clarification since there are different funding channels. You're saying it's not the case that if uh, a certain amount of funding goes to, for instance, CBT, studies that that is take, somehow taken away from or uh, uh, stands in the way of um, finding uh, a cure. No, no. absolutely. And, and that's a really important point. Also, yes, so, I believe so. Yeah. Um, we are both involved, as are you, in um, a European doctoral training program. Um, that's a, a another stream of funding specifically about training and training the next generation of researchers. Um, so I think a useful example mm. um, of, of funding allocation is that here we have 14 and soon to be 15 um, PhD students. And so a lot of funding, a lot of European Union funding. But I think only one of the 15 is actually working on a CBT related project. So we have 14 out of the 15 working on, on other clinical application um, or other basic science um, studies. And just one. <laughs> right. So. Yeah. This is the, the ESIT program. Yes, yeah. Exactly. Um, I would like to um, end with talking a little bit about patient communication, patient doctor communication. Um, what would you like doctors to take away from the guidelines in terms of how they communicate to patients, tinnitus patients? Well, first of all, that there is something for them. So um, since the most mentioned message people get from their GP or ENT is still unbelievably, well, you just have to get used to it. There's nothing I can do. So that is a, this type of message should stop. Mm. Um, hopefully, um, after reading the guideline, any physician or doctor uh, is informed and can at least point towards um, this information source, which is included as well for patients in the guideline, um, if they cannot uh, provide the service themselves. So it should be a guide for informing uh, 
patients about the situation as is and what treatments are available and what the evidence is. So, in, yes, Chapter 5 of the guideline is entirely about communicating information to the patient. So it's written with clinicians and patients in mind. So hopefully it's a, a chapter that, that patients can use and access and, and to bring it to their GP. Um, I think there's, there's a responsibility on both sides, um, for, for patients to, to keep themselves informed and also to, uh, for, for our GPs, our family doctors, um, yeah. to be versed in tinnitus. Um, to, to not be afraid to talk about the impact that it's having on somebody and to establish whether or not there is that need for referral. Um, you know, GPs are generalists. They, they, they can't know everything. They don't know everything. Um, you might, your GP might have a special interest in ear, nose and throat, and then they may, they're more likely to know something about tinnitus. Um, but they, they just need to really establish whether it's something that has an impact or not. And if it has an impact, then that's not something that they're able to deal with. Mm-hmm. And they need to acknowledge that and they need to, to appropriately refer. Yeah. How can we ensure that doctors do actually, yeah, pick up these guidelines and then start using them? So, yeah, that's a good point. Maybe sending it to them <laughs> or the emailing uh, the link or... Obviously, the, as Derek said, these people have to deal with many different problems and they have to deal with many different guidelines, I believe. So it's up to the responsibility as well from the person, but it's also up to the patients to inform them, your your GP or your health uh, care provider to say, listen, I heard there's this guideline. Uh, we do our best, obviously, uh, in our networks to try and disseminate um, like we're sitting here today, that this guy's guideline is here and for for all to to look at. So it's been published in full and openly available. So yeah. it's fully open access, accessible by everybody. Um, we have obviously been disseminating it. We've been disseminating it right through the entire process, yeah. and we'll continue to do so. I think importantly, we've involved lots of societies from right across Europe, um, and they have essentially endorsed the guideline as part of the process that we've gone through. Uh, So it it should be on the alert for every single clinician uh, across Europe. And uh, you said patients also uh, should inform themselves. So if they... um read the guidelines and then wonder, oh, where do I actually find these treatments that you mentioned? How do I get access to this? Uh, What should they do? That's a difficult one. Um, And what I would probably say first is that actually the guidelines are there to hopefully shape and form the service. So a lot of these things that we were recommending and the pathways that we were recommending are not going to be in place everywhere. However, uh, it, it will involve a little bit of searching potentially in the first instance. Yeah. So, so speaking to others, um, speak to people on Tinnitus Hub about things that they've read and things that they're interested in, in pursuing and also contacting, um, national organizations. Yeah. So we've provided a list in the guideline and contact details of um, national patient organizations, um, for various countries across Europe. Yeah. And they quite often hold really good information about what is available to you and from whom and where. Where, yeah. 
Same. So if they see something in the guideline, um, maybe a treatment mentioned or, or anything mentioned, then in the final chapter, we've uh, hopefully added as many as possible patient association websites, in, uh, information resources where uh, people can ask about these issues in their own country. So that is the issue. It's a European guideline. So uh, there'll be many patients from different countries and um, yeah, everything is a little bit differently organized in each country. So to manage that a little bit, we have uh, inserted a list of all the resources we could find. Mm. Right, so let's hope that these guidelines will really take tinnitus care to the next level across Europe and hopefully beyond. Yes, and the evidence as well. <coughs> Absolutely. And the research as well. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, inform the research and take that to the next level. Exactly. That would be wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So Derek and Rilana, I want to thank you so much for this informative discussion. Um, I think uh, patients really appreciate hearing directly from you guys um, what you've been working on mm -hmm. and um, well thank you so much thank you thank you okay folks thanks for listening we hope you enjoyed the interview and learned something from it my take on it is that I'm kind of conflicted on one hand it's disappointing to learn about the lack of rigorous evidence for most treatments and certainly for any treatments that actually reduce the tinnitus itself but at least now we have an overview of currently available options and the state of the evidence, and it's clear that we shouldn't let our doctors send us off without even as much as a proper evaluation. You can find the link to the new European Clinical Practice Guidelines on our own podcast page at tinnitustalk.com podcast. We also included a link to the U.S. guidelines for those of you based there as well. Okay, well, now we're going to end it with a little bit of housekeeping. This podcast is distributed through many channels like iTunes, Spotify, Google, and SoundCloud. But if you want to read more background information or leave comments, please visit our own podcast page at tinnitustalk.com slash podcast. Here you can also have access to written transcripts of our episodes through the CC button on the player. And we've created timestamps for each episode, allowing you to jump straight to different sections of the episode, depending on which topics you're most interested in listening to. Also on the Tinnitus Talk support forum, that's tinnitustalk.com, you will find a subforum entirely dedicated to this podcast where you can discuss episodes with other members, propose ideas for new episodes, and submit questions for upcoming podcast guests. This makes a much more interactive experience, so we'd love to see you there. Of course, the Tinnitus Talk forum is also a great place to visit if you're struggling with your tinnitus and you need some friendly support from people who understand what it's like to deal with it. Finally, folks, we'd like to ask you to subscribe to this podcast through whatever preferred platform you're using, and don't forget to give us a rating as well and leave a review. We can also show your support by sharing this episode through social media platforms. And that about wraps it up for this episode. I hope you guys have a great day. Thanks again for listening, and we hope to see you around on tonight's talk. <laughs>